Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, it is great to be with you today. Um, as many of you know, we're in the sixth week of a series that I've called Castaway that's based on a project that I was assigned in seminary way back when William Jefferson Clinton was in the White House. Remember that guy? <laughs> no one? Okay, I was like, cricket, cricket. All right. Anyway, uh, way back then asked me to develop a framework of how I might respond if someone with whom I was stranded on a desert island or asked me how I came to believe in both God and Jesus. And for that assignment, I identified a series of steps that someone might take when considering the evidence for the Christian faith. And my thought kind of was that, you know, after agreeing with a certain step, agreeing that that step was reasonable, you might move to the next step and eventually, you know, find yourself at the line separating those who would say they believe in Jesus from those who do not. A place from which you know, someone might actually have the courage to pick up their remaining questions and doubts and sort of carry them across the line of faith. Uh, and the steps that I developed way back then uh, became the framework for this series. And, and so uh, by way of review, if you haven't been with us so far uh, during the series of talks, here are the steps that we've considered thus far. Uh, in the first week of the series, I presented what at least to me is compelling evidence that well, we're not here by accident, that there is in fact a designer behind all the design that we see in our world. And, and moreover, given all that evidence, it actually takes a lot of faith not to believe in a creator. Uh, if we're honest, um, our, his fingerprints are all over our world, or, or as I've said, you know, maybe our fingerprints are all over his world. Anyway, that's the conclusion from week one. And then that second step in week two, I made the somewhat obvious observation that if there is a creator, then something has gone wrong. It's almost like at a very deep level, something's wrong both with our world, and I present as evidence the current COVID-19 pandemic, um, and something is wrong in us, and I present as evidence myself. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, um, I'm kind of a piece of work. And, and here's what I mean by that. I don't always do the things that I know I should do. A and I don't think I'm the only one who has that problem. And if you just nudge the person next to you, that's awkward. You shouldn't do that in church, right? Uh, but, but as we've noted, the authors of the Bible repeatedly use the word sin to describe that something that has gone so horribly wrong. They, they describe sin as any decision or reality that is outside of God's original design. Uh, consequently, whenever someone chooses to sin, it always takes creation in the wrong direction, away from what the designer or the creator intended. Uh, moreover, the authors of the Bible tell us that whenever someone sins, it creates a sort of debt, both with whoever it was that our sinful choice harmed, but also, as it turns out, with the creator. And it was with that rather uplifting thought on which we landed the second week of the series. Then in weeks three and four, we discussed the evidence that suggests that the creator has made contact with humanity. And that when he did, he actually affirmed everything that we've discussed so far, that we're not here by accident, that something has gone wrong, and now all people everywhere are in debt to him because of their sins. But, but fortunately, that's not all that he communicated, not by a long shot. Because when the creator made contact, he actually revealed a way for people, people like you and I, to deal with the sin in our lives and to actually pay off the debt that our sins had incurred with him. That way involved the greatest gift 
that has ever been given. And actually, a pastor named Paul celebrated that gift in a letter written 2,000 years ago to Christians living in the city of Rome. Here's how Paul described it. He first talks about the problem. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he justified or satisfied or paid off the debt for all sin and for all time. And moreover, and and this is critical, he didn't do it because we humans deserved it. And he didn't do it because we are good or we were good enough. He did it because he is good and because he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And now on the other side of the cross, he invites all people everywhere to accept the free gift of grace and to enter a new sort of relationship with him. One, fortunately, that is not dependent on our faithfulness to him, but rather one that is solely dependent on his faithfulness to us. And that was the conclusion of week four, as well as the conclusion of the conversations of what the creator has done for us. Uh, Then last week, you may remember if you were here, we discussed what the creator wants to do through us. Namely, that he desires to leverage the lives of Jesus' followers to demonstrate a new and better way to be a human in the world. A way that reflects more of what he had in mind in the beginning. A way of self-sacrificing love that follows the example of our self-sacrificing creator. A way that can and a way that has made a powerful and observable difference in our world. All right, so now that both concludes our review and sets the stage for what comes next. Because at this point in my hypothetical series of conversations with the guy stranded with me on the deserted island, I would imagine that he would say something like, wow, I, um, I can see what you're saying. And honestly, it's very compelling. But, but I'm curious as to how those early Jesus followers were able to make such a dramatic shift in their lifestyle. I mean, understanding a different worldview is one thing, but living into it, learning a new way to be human is, is a different thing entirely. So how exactly were those early Jesus followers so able to navigate the massive changes they needed to make? I'm not sure I could do it. And if this question were raised by the man on the beach, I would respond, it's interesting you should bring that up because that's actually what we need to talk about next. Because the good news is that not only... Uh, Does the creator desire to do something for us? And not only does the creator desire to do something through us, he actually also wants to do something in us. And that's why, and this is absolutely critical for you to understand, Christianity is not a self-help program, even though a lot of people think that it is. And and here's what I mean. Self-help programs operate on the assumption that we human beings make bad decisions because we make mistakes in our thinking. And that if we had better information, then we would make better decisions. I mean, if we could read enough books, we could attend enough seminars, we could go to enough counselors and listen to enough podcasts, then we would do life better. In other words, the core of our problem is a lack of information. And that sounds pretty good. It really does. It sells a lot of self-help books in our, on our planet. But it doesn't really explain those times when we do things when I do things that I know are wrong or unwise. Uh, Those times when I make mistakes on purpose. 
you, you know, the moments, you've, you've had these moments when you think things like, um, you know, I know I may not be, it may not be the best idea, but I'm going to overextend myself in debt to finance something that I don't really need and can't really afford, but that in this moment I really want. Or, or maybe something like this. I know I may regret it later, but I'm going to pursue relational intimacy with someone other than my spouse because right now I want to. And, and honestly, because I'm, I'm kind of bored with the commitments that I've made to them, and I may even have suspected that I made a mistake getting married in the first place. Or how about this one? Um, I know my friends say I should be more careful, but I'm going to lean into a habit in which I numb out on substances that I know aren't really good for me, but that provide a momentary escape from the struggles and tensions of life. I mean, if, if we're honest about it, you know, in moments like that, our problem isn't really a lack of information. We know what we should do. We just don't want to do it. It's, it's almost like something has warped the lens through which we look when we're making decisions. We have trouble properly weighing our choices and our consequences. Our problems seem to be on the inside. And that's why if we're going to get better at life, we don't just need information. We need intervention. And here's some really, really good news. Intervention is precisely what the Creator offers to followers of Jesus. It's actually what He wants to do in us. Now, the same pastor we referred to earlier, this pastor named Paul, helps us see how this works in a letter that he writes to early Christians living in the region of the Roman Empire called Galatia. It's in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and in this letter, he identifies two different ways that you can live after receiving what Jesus has done for you. And before I show you what he wrote, it's critical for us to recognize that he's writing to Christians— Apparently, you can struggle to do what you know you should do after becoming a Christian. And that should have brought about a riotous amount of laughter because you already knew that, right? And so did I. Anyway, here's what Paul wrote. He said, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And so I see two things that are absolutely critical for us to understand as this passage opens. First, that our natural instincts are often sinful. They often, if we indulge in them, take creation in the wrong direction. Uh, the second thing I see in this passage is that there is help available uh, from someone Paul calls the Spirit. And now the Spirit, Paul mentions here, is the Holy Spirit. And uh, just by a brief aside, when I was growing up in Sunday school, we would call him the Holy Ghost. Anyone else with me on that? Remember that? Yeah. Which sounded a little scary to me. And so I asked for clarification one day from my third grade Sunday school teacher, a wonderfully mustached man named Wally. I never forget Wally, right? And when I inquired of the aforementioned Wally, he assured me that the Holy Spirit is a friendly ghost. And in response, I said, oh, like Casper. And he nodded. <laughs> Don't judge. It was the 80s. I was a kid and he was a volunteer. I'm sure he has repented. <laughs> anyway, the authors of the Bible tell us that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers change in the life of a Jesus follower from the inside out. And Jesus himself actually gives us some further insight as to how the Holy Spirit works during a conversation with his first followers. And this is what Jesus said. Um, he says, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And now notice Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Counselor. 
Apparently, he wants us to know that the Holy Spirit will come in us and will teach us and remind us and lead us. But, but here's the thing. We still have to choose to follow. In other words, we are not robots. So, so the Holy Spirit will prompt us not to do things like look or touch or click or call or text. And then it's our decision what comes next. In other words, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit will not change you without your permission or participation. He won't do it without you. And because you're a bit warped, I'm a bit warped on the inside, we will struggle to make the changes we need to make without him. That's why it's like a partnership. And so with that established, Paul uh, continues and he describes the struggle that exists within the heart and mind of every follower of Jesus. Here's how he says it. He writes, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. He says, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want to do. And I want to say thank you, Paul, for finally identifying what exactly is going on inside of me, why I don't always do the things that I want to do, that I should do, and that I could do. What's wrong on the inside? Paul says, there is a battle within you, whether you realize it or not. And if you're going to make the changes you need to make, you need to recognize that you will not at times instinctively do what you should do. We live in a world that tells us, follow your heart. And the Bible's authors are pretty clear, following your heart can get you in a lot of trouble. And Paul actually gives us some details as to what that looks like as he continues. And um, here's what he writes. He says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. In other words, none of what I'm about to tell you is going to surprise you. If you want to just do whatever you want to do in any given moment, if you get away with anything and there wouldn't be any consequences, if you're just to kind of go with what comes naturally, here's what would happen. And Paul made us a list. Here he goes. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, which is my favorite one because no one knows what it means. So we're like, at least I got that one under control, right? Uh, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discourse, jealousy, he's not done, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I love that Paul ends with and the like. It's like he wants to say to them, <clears throat> etc. right? Like I could go on, but you get the idea. Uh, when you do what comes naturally, it's not always pretty. In fact, you know, this week as I was sort of, you know, ruminating on those unpleasant words, um, I noticed something. There seems to be like a common denominator that underlies all these acts of the sinful nature that Paul describes. And they all kind of seem to involve pleasure at someone else's expense. And here's why I say that. It's whether you recognize it or not, someone always pays the price when someone else gives in to a selfish inclination even when they get away with it, even when they don't get caught, and even when no one holds them accountable. Somebody always suffers when sin is indulged. And so now fortunately, as Paul continues, he presents us with like door number two, some, a more hopeful, helpful option. And, and he says it this way, in contrast, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as I'm and, as, and reading these words, I don't know about you, but inside of me, it's like, like, man, that's, that's what our world needs a lot more of. 
And Jesus would say, and I came to show you and empower you to go after that sort of life. The fruit of the Spirit is, is Paul's way of describing what happens when someone says to God, I'm tired of living for me. When someone stops listening to that inner prompting from their heart and they start listening to his voice. When someone admits to themselves and to God, you know, following my instincts is not working. I've made a mess of my life. I've made a mess of my relationships. I mean, I, 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 God, I just, I surrender. I will follow you. Please lead me by your spirit from the inside out. And Paul says, when you decide to quit pursuing the desires of the sinful nature, when you finally say to God that you want his will in your life, then he can lead you and you can follow. And when that happens, Paul says, God will produce the fruit of the spirit in you. And you and those around you will get to experience a little bit more of the life that you were made to live the life that was designed for you in the beginning, a, mar a life marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. A life that generates love into a world that desperately needs it. Well, Paul concludes this section with, with a simple but profound encouragement. Again, he's writing to Christians. And here's what he says. Since we live by the Spirit, like he's in you, he's prompting you. He says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's like day by day, moment by moment, step by step, the Holy Spirit is inviting you to follow him. And Paul would say, you need to listen and you need to trust and you need to move because he's calling you beyond the selfish tendencies that are all too natural, but were never intended to be a part of the human experience. And he's inviting you into a more selfless way of living. Paul writes, because you've accepted what the creator has done for you, I want you to lean into what he wants to do in you. It's better for you and it's better for everyone else. Now, you know, kind of on a personal note, I've been a pastor for over 20 years and, and I've spent 20 years working with followers of Jesus, 20 years studying the text, 20 years trying to wrestle down what does it mean to follow Jesus in an authentic way in our, in our world. And I'm telling you, one of the most powerful apologetics for the reality of a creator, you say to me, how does someone know that there's really a creator? And I'm telling you, it's whenever a follower of Jesus does a decent job at keeping in step with the Spirit. Because you meet these people and they live changed lives. They live better lives. And they're fascinating and they're captivating because honestly, they, they present themselves as a largely non-anxious presence in an incredibly anxious world. Instead of like scrambling each day to make sure they get what they deserve or what they want, they approach each day with the posture of servanthood and they look at people around them and just say, how can I help? Who does God want me to love today? Who does God want me to serve today? And, and they, they, they see the world differently. And so as I play forward the conversation on the island with my fellow castaway, I think I would ask if he'd ever experienced a follower of Jesus who lived in a way that was compelling or a way that captured his attention. And I imagine that he'd answer that he had and that those experiences are what actually had led him to wonder if there was something to the whole Jesus thing 
after all. I also imagine that, that he would say that if there were more Christians who lived lives that reflected their faith, then there would be a lot more people who might become followers of Jesus. And if he said that, then I would have to agree. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, before I let you go, I need to ask you a really important question. And it flows right out of what we discussed. It goes like this. And it's the same question I ask myself each day. Um, are you keeping in step with the Spirit? Or um, it's possible that you're someone uh, who has accepted God's work for you without ever seriously considering that God wanted to do work in you. I mean, maybe no one told you. But God wants to do the work in you to recreate you right here and right now in the image of Jesus. And it's both for your sake and for the sake of the world. He wants to bless you to be a blessing. So if you're a follower of Jesus, it's like, where have you recently been feeling nudged to move away from selfishness? And where have you acknowledged a need to change? And maybe you've acknowledged the need to change, but you've been telling God later, like, I'll, I'll get to that maybe this fall, maybe this winter. And maybe you keeping in step with the Spirit is you stop telling God later and you just start doing what you know you need to do. I'm, I'm telling you, and this is, the, this is the good news, like, your best life happens at the intersection of your faith and God's faithfulness. He is waiting, and he is prompting, and he is ready to partner with you in the project of becoming more the person that he made you to be. So that's for those of us that are followers of Jesus. It's a little, little self-checkup. Um, but if you're here this morning and you've never accepted the free gift of God's grace, like maybe for you, like this hypothetical conversation with a guy on the beach is like, dude, I don't know if it's good for anybody else, but you and me are having a conversation right now. Uh, and if that's you, uh, just a question for you, uh, it goes like this. Have you been trying and failing to help yourself by yourself? Um, and if so, I have good news for you too, because there is help available from the God who made you and who knows you and who loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Um, th there's a moment that the biblical authors call salvation. And that's the moment when you accept that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross covers your sins. And for a lot of people, reaching that moment often begins with a proclamation of inadequacy. It's when we acknowledge, God, I'm not good enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I've made a mess of my life and I need help. I'm not strong enough to deal with my sinful nature, but I know that you are. And so please invade my life and empower me to surrender to the voice of your spirit. And for a lot of people in this room, followers of Jesus, we would say for a lot of us, that was a part of our moment when we surrendered to what God has done for us and opened ourselves to the work that God wants to do in us. I guess what I'm trying to say after all this is that Christianity, the Christian life, is not a self-help program. It's way better than that. It's not about information. It's about intervention. And that reality has the power to change everything. All right, now if you're in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, in this moment, I just want to say thank you. 
I don't know that we will ever fully understand the love that drove you to send Jesus to rescue us. How you love unlovable people. But somehow you do. And so we say thank you for grace, undeserved mercy. And thank you as well for wanting to work to help us change right here and right now in this life from the inside out. I pray that you would open our ears to the voice of your spirit who is always speaking. Help us to hear clearly and then give us courage to follow those promptings and to become an increasingly non-anxious presence in the world. I pray that this morning you would righteously disturb those of us who've become too comfortable and you would comfort those of us who've become too disturbed. Ultimately, we desire to be a people who demonstrates a better way in this world so that the light from our lives will point people to you. And so once again this morning, we say thank you, we bless you, we honor you, and we love you because you first loved us. In the matchless name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for the conclusion of Castaway.